All right. Well, we've made it. Actually made it a long way. We've made it to the, the, the kingdom of Israel. Um, quickly last week, we, we pushed through, finished the judges, and we crowned our first king, King Saul. Um, I, we're we're going to talk a little bit more about Israel's request for a king over them, and uh, something I want to dive into just a little bit here. And then um, we will continue on from there, and we'll make it all the way to David today. I'm going to start off first, though, with a passage um, from Deuteronomy. So this is Moses, um, because where, if you, if you recall, last time we met, we talked about how Israel wanted a king. Sa- uh, the prophet Samuel gave a long list of things that the king would do. Samuel was upset about this request um, and, and warned Israel strongly about some of the, the things that you know, the king would do. There's a whole list. But... I don't want to skip over the fact that Moses' law actually has provision for a king. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 17, I'm going to start in uh, verse 14. I'm going to read uh, five or six verses here. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you, you shall set over you shall set his king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, in a book, a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words and laws, the words of this law and statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue in his kingdom, he and his children. In Israel, well, we're going to see that the kings of Israel violate several of many of these guidelines. But the, the point is, is that it might seem a little odd to us. Why was Samuel so displeased um, when Israel demanded a king? It can't be intrinsically sinful or Moses wouldn't have given them instructions for how to do it. Like, what's a king supposed to do? Moses said, that's okay. But it, it's kind of a... Um, it's an interesting question. Why, why is it so? Why is it such a problem? Um, and I think, after after a lot of reading about this and talking about this with different people, I think that it's important to remember the context right at the end of our last lesson. Okay, um, if you'll if you'll remember um, in First Samuel seven, the Philistines. Are, coming, are, are once again threatening, um, this is while Samuel's judging Israel, the Philistines are once again threatening Israel, and um, the Israelites put away, at Samuel's instruction, they, they put away their foreign gods, their false gods, they humble themselves and they serve God, right? And God delivers them. He completely gets rid of the Philistines, but there's... 
So there's this interesting, there's this interesting um, context for Israel asking for a king. They had just been delivered, not that long ago, by God from this foreign threat. Okay? And again, this is in 1 Samuel 7. Um, they humbled themselves, God delivered them. So just, just a, a chapter later, Israel's now demanding a king. And they say, if you read in 1 Samuel 8, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And I think the context there is, is important. Two things. One, God had just delivered the people of Israel from a foreign threat. Because we remember that Israel still exists and there's pockets of people that aren't Israelites in and around them, some of them very powerful, and that Israel's in constant danger. Very shortly after God shows his faithfulness and delivers the Israelites, they're demanding a king. They want to be like everyone else, and they want to have a king who will go out and fight their battles for them. So in effect... Israel, in some, in some way, they're asking to be like the nations around them. But again, that can't be sinful in and of itself because God gave instructions about how this was to be done. But what was it that Israel had to do before God would deliver them from the Philistines just a chapter earlier? They had to humble themselves. They had to put aside their gods. They had to serve the Lord only. And I think that's... That's close to the heart of this. That's one of two things that, that to me really seem to clarify this is that God had just delivered them. He required the people to humble themselves. And now their people are saying, we want a king to go out and fight our battles for us. We, we, we still want the security. We still want a king to go out and fight the battles for us. So what's missing? They had to humble themselves before God. They had to put away their foreign idols. And maybe, perhaps, Israel who was never long without their foreign idols at this point, let's be honest. Maybe they were looking for the same security, but without having to approach God in that way. See what I mean? I think that's interesting, uh, just that they still wanted someone to fight their battles for them and protect them, but they really wanted a king and not God, who had just, just you know, displayed that he was more than willing to watch over them if they would only humble themselves and obey him. That's one of, the two, one of the two things. Another thing in the context that's important is Samuel is something that we haven't seen for a while in this narrative, a prophet who speaks to God face to face. Sorry, question. Well, I didn't have a question so much, but it's like God's given them enough rope to hang themselves, basically. Because, he, of course, God knows what's going to happen. They're going to keep screwing up, keep getting judged over and over. And it's just like every step is a new way to screw up. So now they're going to have a king. There's another way to make a mess of things. Yes. And so God is patient with them. He keeps, you know, to me, it's like, why why do that? Why not just smack them upside the head and shape them up? But that's not how he's doing it with them. He's taking them one step at a time to their own destruction in a way because they're just such a rebellious and foolish people like us. So. And, and yes, and, and we will see the, the ultimate outcome of some of these kings, obviously, like you said, doesn't always end up so well. Yes, Greg. I was also thinking that the reason Samuel is unhappy is is it's 
it appears to be that the Israelites still don't get it. They, they, you know, God is protecting them. Uh, it's, it's not a king that's protecting you, Israel. It's God. Yes. What, 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 why do you need a king? You've just been demonstrated to that God will take care of you. And you say, well, what we really need is a king. Like everybody else. Like everybody else. You want to be like everybody else? Right. You well, know, God might just let you be like everybody else. Well, remember it worked out so well when they adopted the gods of the Philistines and the Philistines moved in and conquered them and enslaved them. You know, friendship with the world, being like the world, that has been tried by God's people many times throughout history. And being like the world does not make the world love you. We know this. Um, but I, I think that's right. I think there's that context there. And um, I think it is important that, that they still don't understand really how God fits in with their protection. Even in some of the battles we've just read about, um, a couple of the narratives make it clear, even when the, it, it actually says in some of the narratives that um, God killed more people than the, the army of the Israelites did. Just so there's no confusion, that it wasn't like a great military leader who was responsible for this, that it's God who's ultimately protecting them. So on the one hand, we have the context about, you know, they had just been delivered by God not that long ago, and yet now they want a king to fight their battles for them. Another thing, too, is that Samuel is a prophet. Remember, we just left the era of the judges, okay? And the judges had their role in, this, in delivering Israel at certain times from certain dangers, but nobody was running up to, to Samson you know, who spent, who spent time with prostitutes and being like, hey, tell us what God says. You know, it wasn't like that. We had that earlier with some of the prophets, but not recently. And, but Samuel is a prophet and does speak to God. So if your prophet is telling you this is a bad idea, I think it shows a lack of, um, um, either a lack of understanding of Samuel's office or just a lack of caring that God may not, this may not be the time God has ordained for you to have a king in this way. Because it says they demanded a king. And I just, um, but it's clearly not the right time because in 1 Samuel 8, 7, um, the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So it's, it's kind of a big idea to grasp, but I want to kind of get it, get it in our mind that it was not sinful in and of itself for Israel to have a king, but the way they asked for it, the context historically where they asked for it, the way they demanded it, and the way they sort of ran roughshod over Samuel, a prophet of God, his advice, who speaks to God, I think that's what makes it sinful so that God can say something like that to Samuel, that they have rejected me. Um, so it's a rejection of God himself. Um, obviously not a good thing, but as Lee pointed out, God still gives them the request. They, they get a king. Um, so they get, they get Saul, um, who has no special qualifications other than he's very tall and very handsome. That's what we know about Saul. Um, it's funny, well, one, one last thought on that was that the price that they had to pay, that Israel had to pay to the Lord for his protection and blessing was obedience. 
You had to obey God. You had to put away the foreign gods. You had to humble yourself. You had to serve God. That was what Israel had to do to have God's protection. And God's protection was always enough. Didn't matter whether it was an army, a Red Sea. It doesn't matter. God could get them through it if they would do those things. But they have now asked for a king to fight for them. But as Samuel points out, there's a cost that has to be rendered to a king too, right? So it wasn't like they just, well, a king will still take care of the security, but maybe it'll be a little easier on us about some of these things. No, no. A king has to be paid for as well, maybe in a slightly different way, but oh, there's definitely a price to be paid for a king. Um, Samuel is, oh, yes. No, not just... I mean, they make it sound like, oh, the king will go out and fight for us, and we'll just stand there and watch the king fighting. Well, there was precedent for leaders that were leading armies of, you know, men from Israel out to yeah, fight. Right. Um, I don't I don't know... That Which the, would be them getting and having to fight, too. It's just like... It's I don't just, know. When it's written down, it just... It's like amazingly yeah. dumb. Yeah. And <laughs> it's... Yes, I'm not sure exactly how that thought process worked out, but Samuel's aghast. He says in 1 Samuel uh, 8:15, he, meaning the king, will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. A tenth. I mean, imagine. You know, that's a high price. Also, well, we we'll get more into that later, but basically I just I want you guys to kind of have this picture um how how we have a king, but it's not what it should have been, and it wasn't done in God's time, and God's prophet is not happy with it. Now, we're going to move on and do more narrative here, but does that make sense? It was kind of a big question that I came up with, and I didn't want it to be like a, I didn't want it to be one of those things where like, well, why did God talk about a king? Then it's sinful to have a king, and Carol. I was just thinking of um, Psalm 106, uh, 14 and 15. Um, they had a want and, want and craving in the wilderness and put God to the test. Um, I, th I think this is when they, um, <clears throat> we got to have meat. Mm -hmm. we're, we're sick of this man. You know, mm -hmm. they, they asked God to give them something. And then it says this, he gave them what they asked, but he sent a wasting disease among them. The King James says he sent leanness into their soul. He gave them what they asked for, but he sent leanness into their soul. So if you beg for something, and it's not the right time or the, for the wrong reason. God may give it to you, but you'll pay for it. It's true. Spir spiritually. It's true. No, I, I think that, that piggybacks off that. I think that's very, it's kind of a scary point, but it, it, it's good to consider that as we study through this. Because remember, this is written for our instruction. We're supposed to be learning something from this, right? And the dependence on God, the obedience to God, the danger of looking for other avenues to fulfill some of the things we want. Be like, I know God promises he'll take care of me, but, you know, there, surely there's other easier, less costly ways, you know, where some of that same protection could be picked up. I think that's just the danger for us and why, why the, the story of this king makes sense to, to, to pause on for a second. But anyway, um, thoughts on that. Samuel gives Saul instruction, excuse me, Samuel, <clears throat> he anoints Saul king. And Saul goes through a period of, um, well, Saul prophesies, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. We'll see that later when it departs, but the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And um, this sort of confirms um, God's choice of Saul, is that again, we do this thing where Israel presents itself, they cast lot for which tribe, 
and then we cast lot for which clan, and then we cast lot for the individual, and Saul is selected. So, I mean, this is, this is one of those things they, they had shows God's sovereignty that this was, in fact, um, this was the guy. Um, and it also showed it publicly among all the other Israelites. Um, and Saul, in this momentous moment, is found hiding among the baggage. They have to go get him. To be fair, being king would be scary if you'd never done it before. So, I mean, you know, Saul, who, remember, is a head taller than everyone else and very pretty to look at. They find him hiding in the baggage. They go dig him out, and they present him before the people. It's like, this is the guy. And they say, long live the king. Um, and remember, God's spirit has descended on Saul. And the next, um, <clears throat> now we're in 1 Samuel 11. Um, next, um, Saul hears that there's an Ammonite siege at Jabesh Gilead. Um, and the Ammonites are, are, have encircled the city. And the people of the city are, are scared. And uh, they say to the leader of the army, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. This is in 1 Samuel 11. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. No terms, basically. There, I'm not going to, I'm surrounding you, you know, I've encircled your city, you're, in, you're under siege. I'm not going to make any terms with you. Well, Saul hears of this. Um, he's very angry. You know, the Spirit of God's on him, and, and, and he summons an army of over 300,000 Israelites. And he leads the force, strikes the Ammonite camp at daybreak, and routs them. And, um, and apparently there were some people who had been questioning whether or not Saul really should be the king. Um, in 1 Samuel eleven twelve, fresh off this victory, the people are very enthusiastic. And then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men that we may put them to death. But Saul says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And then they sacrifice to God. So we have this thing where the, the, the asking, the demanding for a king was not really done in the right way. But we now Saul is there. He's, he's becoming king. He's had this military success. Um, it's sort of solidified him. You know, we know that God, the Spirit of God is on him. Um, and it seems for the moment like things are going pretty well. Um, and Samuel here gives kind of a, um, a farewell address, which is funny because we're going to actually hear quite a bit more from Samuel. But anyway, Samuel is older. There's a king in place. You might think, well, okay, we've got a king. I've been prophet for a long time. You know, I judged Israel. It is now time for me to step back. And, and, and Samuel gives this. Um, he sort of, he goes through this thing where he defends um, his integrity and the service he's given. The, the Israelites affirm, you have not cheated us. You've been faithful. Um, and Samuel kind of takes them through, and this is in uh, 1 Samuel 12. He kind of takes them through a section where he reminds them and walks back through Israel's history. And he talks about their sinfulness and he warns the people in uh, verse 14, If you will feel, fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, 
it will be well. But if you will not obey the word of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So it's a warning, right? This prophet of God, he's given a warning. Um, what was always required for God to protect Israel was that Israel obey God. Now, Israel and Israel's king has to obey God to enjoy that same blessing, or things will get bad. And yes, things will get very bad. But um, he also, and this is really interesting uh, to me, um, and down in verse 23, this is Samuel again, Moreover, as for me, be it far from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you shall do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So this prophet of God is like, oh, don't worry. I'm going to be praying for you. And I'm still going to instruct you in the, the right and the wrong way. So it is kind of a farewell speech. But Samuel, like I said, he's not going anywhere. Um, and he's still going to play an active role. And it's just interesting to me that a prophet of God would say, Oh, it would be sinful for me to stop praying for you. I will be praying for you, the nation, you know, because you obviously need the prayer. So in a way, this is kind of, this is kind of Saul's high point right here. I mean, we just, we really just got him on the throne, but this is kind of the apex of Saul, Saul's reign as a king because um, very quickly there's going to be a problem. The Philistines, Israel's old enemy, um, he reigned over Israel for about two years. And his Saul's son, Jonathan, who we'll learn is apparently a very mighty warrior, um, defeats a garrison of the Philistines at Geba. And Saul responds to this by sounding trumpets saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Well, that's interesting. That's a lie, first of all. I mean, when you're a king, you can get away with some things, but your son defeated these, you know, this, this fortress of the enemy. And now Saul's taking credit for it, which is kind of shameful behavior as a king. But what's really significant is the Philistines' response to this, they don't take this very lightly, and they amass a huge force, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, numerous other soldiers, and they move to attack Israel. And the Israelites are so terrified by this, they scatter, hiding themselves in holes, in rocks, and in tombs. They are very worried. that This is a large force, technologically advanced. Chariots were the, you know, the fighter jets of the day. So this is a real testing point for Saul's uh, kingship here. And what happens next is Saul was, had apparently summoned Samuel, and he waited. When Samuel was late for the meeting, Saul offers, not Saul, Saul himself offers burnt offerings Afterwards, Samuel, Samuel appears and confronts him. Why did Saul offer this sacrifice? Why was it sinful? 
Thoughts? I have some, but I'd rather hear yours first. Why? Why? Greg. It was sinful, was that Saul had told him, "I'm coming and I'll be there in seven days." Yes, and 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 wait for me. Mm -hmm. So Saul uh, defied the prophet. Yes, I mean he was a king, mm -hmm. but he was under the leadership of the prophet of the land, Samuel. Yes, yes, and, and it, it actually says further down, Saul when he confesses, he says, "I forced myself and offered the burnt offering." He forced it. I forced myself. You know, Saul knew he, there was no confusion. He knew he wasn't supposed to do this. Um, but, you know, he's the king. People around him are scared. There's this huge enemy force appro approaching, and he does what he's not supposed to do. Um, and Samuel tells Saul that because of his foolishness, God will not establish his descendants over Israel. So like right away, just, just to start with here, you could have been the guy... If, you'd been, if you had obeyed God, and your children, your, your line would have been the royal family of Israel going forward. No. Done. You can't, you know, you can't obey this one thing. You can't, you know, it's not proper for you to offer this sacrifice, but you did. You forced it. So that's taken away from you now. So we see the beginning of... of, of further decline of Saul. And Jonathan, Saul's son, and his armor bearer sort of approached the Philistine camp. Sort of a... Um, it's weird. It's like some of the Philistines, a few of them come out to meet him, sort of like, um, you know, in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And Jonathan, again, apparently quite a warrior, he kills 20 of the Philistines. And this causes a panic and confusion in the great Philistine camp. And Saul chooses this moment, moment to attack, and the Philistines flee. Um, and then, as we're learning more about Saul, we learn kind of a, um, a mark of his rashness, or maybe we'd call it pride. Remember, it was Jonathan who initiated this, okay? Jonathan's one-on-one um, -on -one conflict with a few of the Philistines caused panic in the camp. And that led to an overthrowing of the whole of the whole enemy force. Um, but Saul pushes his men forward, and uh, he tells everyone that they cannot eat until evening. They have to punish the Philistines, punish his enemies, and have vengeance on them. And when Jonathan, who hadn't heard his dad make this odd request, he's basically. Saul was basically saying, don't even stop to eat. Chase these guys, slaughter them, get after them. I don't want anyone pausing. Jonathan didn't know about this. And he eats some honey that he finds. And Saul states that Jonathan must die. It's odd. It's an odd, it's an odd sequence of events. And the Israelites are they, horrified by this, and they ransom Jonathan because he played a critical role in winning the battle and the battle before this. Um... So Saul continues on. He's now in full possession of his kingship. He attacks Israel's enemies on all sides and has success. This is in 1 Samuel 14 now. Um, he drives away many of uh, the Israelites' traditional enemies. And um, militarily, this was probably Saul's uh, high point. Although, as we've seen, the high point of his kingship, where he was still 
obedient and in God's favor had already passed. But we get to this point now, and the enemies are scattering before him. He solidified his hold on the throne. Um, but, but we're learning things about Saul. We're learning that he does not obey the prophet of God. We learned that he would, was only too happy to take credit for a military victory perpetuated by his son. We learned that he's given to making uh, rash vows in pursuit of vengeance, you know, and like, it, it's, it's interesting, like, it's, we're just learning more about it. And Samuel now, um, this is in First uh, Samuel 15, appears to Saul with instructions from God. Very explicit here. There's no confusion. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over the people of Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Very clear, okay? God made you king. I anointed you. God has instructions for you as the king of Israel to do. You're still the king. This is what you need to do. Um, and the instructions are for God to attack the city of Amalek. Excuse me, for... <clears throat> from God, instructions from God to um, <clears throat> king to attack the city of Amalek and to kill everything in the city. And Saul summons a force, 200,000 men, and sacks the city. And he kills the inhabitants, except for the king. And he kills all the livestock, except for the best ones, which they keep. Um... And, and we can just see this is, we can see the problem this is going to be. And as I was reading this, it was just, it was a question that kind of came to me. Um, obviously, this was a commandment for a certain time and a certain place. But in our context, in the church, do we sometimes feel that God's commands are just excessively harsh or a little difficult? Because what we have here with King Saul is partial obedience. Okay, he did a lot of the things God asked him to do. He skipped some of the hardest parts. And it got me thinking, like, for us, because remember, we're supposed to be learning from this, what, what are the dangers of partial, or if you want to call it, incomplete obedience? God asked for this, and I did most of it. Well, what about the part that was most difficult? It seemed like a lot. Because we're going to see that God does not have a very happy response with Saul. Um, this is the beginning of, 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 of things where things begin to slide rather quickly. Um, and I just wanted to note that, that, that Saul had rendered incomplete obedience to God. And I, just, I think that's a challenge for us is sometimes when it just seems like God's laws are harsh or hard, that there's this temptation to um, not get to the, you know, to, to perhaps skip the parts we're least comfortable with. But God's response shows what he feels. Um, in response to Saul's actions, God speaks to Samuel, says he regrets making Saul the king. That is strong words coming from the creator of the universe. Very strong words. And Samuel is very affected by this. He cries out all night to the Lord in anger. Samuel is very invested in this. Remember, he anointed Saul. So imagine what this is like for him, too. He's angry. He's upset. And Samuel comes to Saul. And Saul lies at first, insisting, he said, 
Um, this is, uh, I'll actually just read it to you I'm from 1 Samuel uh, 15, 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. No. He did some of it. Um, also, remember we've read in other places, apparently um, in this time in history, it was um, not uncommon for kings to keep other conquered kings as sort of trophies of war, Right? You used to be a great king and command a kingdom and command an army, and now you're a servant in my household, or you're like you're you're chained up in my household. You're entertainment for me, and having you here shows that I was more powerful than you were. So that's in effect what Saul has done. But anyway, he lies. He says, uh, "I've kept the commandments of the Lord." And Samuel responds. Samuel said, verse fourteen. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? He didn't get away with his lie very long. It's lying to a prophet of God, so I'm not really sure how he thought that would work out. I think that just says a lot about Saul's mindset. Um, and he claims, when he's caught, basically, Saul claims that the livestock were only kept as an offering to God. So it's okay. I mean, it's okay that we disobeyed God because I was going to offer them up to God. And that it was the people of Israel, really, who were most um, who were most responsible for the sin. And Samuel then pronounces God's judgment. Saul is rejected as king over Israel. From this day, the kingdom will be torn from Saul, and it will be given to a better man. That's verse 28. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So what did Saul lose first? His kingdom. Your, your descendants will not sit on the throne in perpetuity, right? And then what does he lose? You. You're out too. And we enter a period where Saul is still functioning like the king of Israel, but we will see a slide, both of his power and of his abilities and, and, and just him personally, um, and Saul then confessed. Th this is something else that I think will help us see kind of where, where Saul's head is at. Saul confesses this sin to Samuel. He says, it was the fear of the people that made him listen to them and sin by not obeying God. And then, sort of unironically, Samuel makes, uh, Saul makes a special request to Samuel to honor him before the people and the elders of Israel. Okay, okay, I sinned, I did the wrong thing. I was afraid of the people. I, I wanted the people to like me. I wanted, you know. But now that you've, now that the kingship has been torn from me, will you please honor me in front of the people and the elders? Saul seems very preoccupied with what the people, with his appearance, what the people think of him. Far from humbling himself and saying, well, if God has taken my kingship, then, then you know, here it is. I'm, I'm, I, I don't want it anymore. Um, how can I keep it if God has taken it from me? I've sinned. He says, I've sinned, but Samuel, can you honor me before the people and the, and the elders? And I just think that that just shows Saul didn't quite get it, okay? He still doesn't completely understand that he sinned before the living God, that God has given him charge as king over his special people, and he has disobeyed him almost immediately and has lied about it, and now he still seems most concerned, not with what God thinks of him, but what the other Israelites think of him.
or why make such a request? So we move on. Samuel, however, takes care of some unfinished business. Remember Samuel, the prophet who was advanced in age? He directs that that king that was captured, that trophy of war, be brought before him, and he hacks him to pieces, to pieces, thereby doing what Saul would not. Samuel is not concerned about what the people think of him, and he's not concerned about his stature. He's more concerned that God wasn't obeyed, and his anger, he, he literally cuts this captured king to pieces. And then Samuel leaves, and he grieves over Saul, but doesn't see him again until the day of his death. Um... And I had a question in here, but we kind of answered it just because we're running short on time. But I think that's what we can learn about Saul from his confession to Samuel. Go back through it and read it. He does make a confession of sorts, but you can tell very quickly that what he is most concerned about is, well, how are the people going to see me now? You know, please honor me in front of the people. And I just think that's something we can we could learn from. So God now appears and informs Samuel that a new king will be provided. And at God's instruction, Samuel takes a horn, his horn of anointing oil, goes to the house of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Here's another little fun tidbit about Saul. Samuel fears Saul will murder him if it is discovered that God is going to appoint a new king, or that God has made his choice. But God allows Samuel to take a heifer with him so that he can tell everyone along the way, I'm going to make a sacrifice. I have, this, I have the cow with me. I'm going to make a sacrifice. So God provides the protection for this aged prophet. Um, um, but it also, like I said, again, that tells you that Saul, even being confronted by his own sin and confronted with God's judgment, far from being willing to give up his kingship, would have been willing to kill God's prophet, very likely to keep it. So I think that's just, that's another interesting point. Again, kind of just shows you the, the, the slide, the, how... Saul is deteriorating and sliding. Um, but unlike Saul, this new king will not be marked by physical stature. As a matter of fact, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and Jesse provides um, <clears throat> his first seven sons before him. No, 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 no. All of them know. And God even reminds Samuel that God does... There's a famous verse about how God does not view men by the outer appearance the way man does he views the heart which is funny that's because we didn't ever hear anything about Saul's heart we just heard that he was tall and pretty um and Samuel asked Jesse he was like well do you is there is this all your sons and he's like well there's the youngest one and he's out tending the sheep go get him um and we meet David Jesse's son who will be the next king of Israel briefly because we're not going to go through it all. Um, the genealogies of Saul and David are recorded very in very good de in very deep detail in First Chronicles chapters one through eight. If you want to dig into that a little deeper, the Lord instructs Samuel, said, "This is the guy." He takes his oil and anoints David king, and the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David from that day onward. So, right, Saul is still functioning as the king, but God has through Samuel, picked a new king, and he's been anointed, and he has the Spirit of God on him. And interestingly, or rather concurrently at this time, the Spirit of the Lord now departs from Saul. Isn't that interesting, right? That Spirit that was on Saul 
It's been given to David. Saul doesn't have it anymore. But in its place, Saul gets a new spirit, a harmful spirit from God that begins to torment the king. His servants, seeing his anguish and agony, um, suggest finding a man who is skillful in playing the lyre to receive his discomfort. A liar, not like liar, liar, but liar. You guys know what a liar is? It's like a horseshoe-shaped instrument with strings on it, like a harp. Yeah, like a small, primitive harp. Um, And one of his sons, wouldn't you know, suggests a certain son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who's skilled in playing the lyre. And after being summoned, David, the already anointed, already empowered by God's Spirit, King of Israel, enters Saul's service, and his music helps to soothe the king. Also finds favor and love from Saul, who even, Saul even makes David his armor bearer. And so thus we see Israel demanding a king. We see the rise of Saul. We see that very short good time for Saul. And we see the failures that led to his judgment. We see his refusal to give up the throne. And we see God working with Samuel and appointing and anointing a new king who without Saul even being aware of it, is brought in as a servant in Saul's own household. And um, we had to speed through a bit of it here, but that gets us to David. David, I mean, gosh, you know, such a huge figure in the Old Testament. Um, But thoughts about today, because I think that's where we'll end. I don't want to uh, get too much more ahead of that. I want to have some good time to unpack David next week. Thoughts about... Israel's demand for a king, or about having a king, or about Saul and his downfall, or Saul's, um, what we learn about Saul as we see through his actions and through his responses to God and his prophet. Any other thoughts? Questions? Yes, Greg. Well, it seems that it's demonstrated here that if we're to follow God, we're going to, it's going to be different than just uh, the way that things are done in the world. And uh, if we're going to, if that's going to be a problem for us, then it's going to end up a problem for us. Uh, that, that, that if we think, no, we need to do this the way the world wants to do it, we're, we need to know ahead of time that that's re- rebellion against God. And it didn't work for Samuel, uh, or I'm sorry, Saul. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it didn't work. It hasn't worked for anybody yeah. that we've observed. Yeah. And if we're to learn from this, uh, you know, sometimes we forget we're talking about the same God here that's existing today, who is our God, yes. uh, who acts the same way he did then mm-hmm. and expects the same that he did then. And uh, he's expecting from us the same that he expected from the Israelites. And we can't change that because we're living in modern times. It's still the same. Yeah, I agree. It's still the same. I'm always, I'm always, I always get really nervous when I start seeing people who, who seem to be interpreting God's word heavily through the lens of whatever our culture does, because the culture does this, you know, and it wanders back and forth. And it always makes me nervous when, you know, we start seeing that. But you're very right. It's the same God. The same God who wouldn't accept partial obedience from Saul. Almost done is not done. The same God who, uh, you know, the people wanted to be like, well, like everyone else has a king. 
and um, you know that doesn't that does does not impress God. But uh, yes, Wanda, sorry, on oh, Carol too. <clears throat> You're so much wiser than me. You should have Mike, not me. I was just saying what I was thinking, like when God commanded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, that sums it all up. Mm -hmm. And obedience is hard, but it brings up the question to me, which you bring up questions, somebody will bring it up. So David, mm -hmm. <clears throat> obviously later on, he was disobedient. Yes. But even though God's anointed him, mm -hmm. he is not going to have an easy little time there. No. So that, I think that we have the misconception, I do. Well, if I do everything right, it's going to be easy peasy, yeah. and it isn't. True. And so that's just a, it's true. a no, worthless it, thought. It doesn't mean that, you know, David's referred to as a man after God's heart, but we certainly see David struggle and, and, and sin. And now, now that there is a king over Israel, as we heard Samuel talking about, now the king's sin specifically becomes an issue. And we will see Israel not only suffer now for their own sins, but specifically sometimes because of what the king was, was doing. So that opens up a whole nother door there. It's like your, your king's being sinful. That country's not going to be blessed. The nation's not going to be blessed, you know, if there's a sinful king on the throne leading his people in, in bad ways. So, yes, that, that is, it does not always mean a smooth sailing. Wanda, that was a very wise comment. Yeah, wasn't that? That's very helpful. I was good. just going to say, um, in contrast uh, to Saul, mm -hmm. uh, we have Samuel. You know, I mean, Samuel is such a sterling example of following God uh, right down to hacking Agag in pieces, you know. Right. And uh, but I'm thinking, how did how did Samuel get his start? You know, I'm thinking of uh, Hannah mm -hmm. uh, outside the temple, mm -hmm. um, eyes closed, mouth moving, praying so intently. I think it says night and day. Mm -hmm. And Eli, the priest, is sitting there and he thinks he's got a drunken woman here. Yeah. You know, put away your and, wine. And she is so intent, and she said, "If you'll give me a son, I will give him back to the Lord." And yeah. she did exactly what she said. And Samuel became an incredible uh, prophet, yeah. as, as we see here. So it's amazing how his mother's faithfulness was rewarded, and how God used that so mightily in Israel. Because I mean, you think about this, and just like so many other times, you're like, "Man, if not for Samuel, what in the world would be going on right now?" Um, but anyway. Very good. Oh, sorry. That corner there. Well, this is really piggybacking off of what everybody else has said, but I thought about when you, um, sometimes we feel like God's commands are excessively harsh or difficult, mm -hmm. and just the whole thing. Sure. It's we setting ourselves up to know more than God, mm. and then that is not trusting him. And then obedience becomes even more clouded up and screwed up. Oh. I think that's a fantastic point. I hadn't, I hadn't actually thought about that. But what you do, if, if, if Saul is saying, well, I mean, I can agree, God, that all the people in this city I conquered should die. And I think the, the, the livestock that have no use or not very good should die. But have you considered, God, what it would be like to keep their king as a trophy? What have you considered, you know, maybe it would be wise to keep some of their best animals and we can use them for sacrifices and stuff. You're, you're setting your, your own knowledge up on a plane higher than God so that when a command seems hard, or you, you read God's word, and you're like, wow, that, that just doesn't fit in with what the world's doing right now. And, you know, I think I can do most of this, but there's some parts of this that just seem harsh. 
you're putting yourself on that plane up there of knowing more, and we've seen how God rewarded almost complete obedience. I mean, it's in a way, it's sort of fascinating that Saul didn't just say, well, I'm not conquering that city and run off. No, he did most of what he was asked to do, and yet God is profoundly displeased. So I, I think that's a great point. Excellent.